Mark chapter 13, we of course uh, are in the middle of a series on Bible prophecy. Last week we had a little break because it was Passover and we wanted to talk about that and Pastor Tim Chaddock was here. Did you guys enjoy Pastor Tim Chaddock? Wonderful. Uh, His family's moving here tomorrow. Tomorrow they move into town, so please be praying for him and of course uh, for the work that the Lord is going to do down in Hollywood. But as I said, we are in the middle of a series on Bible prophecy or the end times. If you have not heard the previous three lessons, you'll want to hear those. And you can either get a CD in the back today or you can go to the internet, uh, to our website, Jesus is Reality. And there they are for you, the messages and audio. You can either stream them or you can download them, obviously for free. And the study notes are there as well. So uh, if you haven't heard the previous three lessons on Bible prophecy, they sort of build upon one another. It's important that you go back and hear those things. I gave a general introduction to Bible prophecy. We talked about the temple in Jerusalem as it relates to Bible prophecy and to history. And we talked about world conditions prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, outlined here in Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 13. Today we have a subject before us that is of great interest. We pick it up in verse 14. Jesus still speaking says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who is in the housetop not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak but woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days but pray that it may not happen in the winter lord we ask that you would give us understanding this morning of your word as we speak about this subject which to many i'm aware would seem ominous and perhaps scary and even unreal. We ask that you, Lord, would clearly instruct us in your word and that everything that is spoken here today would be for the edification of this body, that we would be built up in the most holy faith because of a study of your word and that this study today would not instill in us fear but rather faith, that Jesus, you know the beginning from the end. You don't just know it, you own it. You own the beginning from the end. And you are in control, and our faith and our salvation rests in you. And we don't look for the Antichrist, we look for Jesus Christ. So Jesus, be among us now as we study your word and bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus here mentions in verse 14, the abomination of desolation. And he says to the people that he's speaking to, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, Matthew chapter 24 gives us more detail as well as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, standing in the temple of God, which is soon to be constructed in Jerusalem, when you see the abomination of desolation there, flee. In other words, he's telling the Jews, all you know what is going to break loose at that time. The abomination of desolation is that moment soon to be in the future. When a man called the Antichrist will walk onto the Temple Mount, into the Temple of God, and set himself up in the holy place as God and demand to be worshipped. That signals halfway through the seven-year tribulation period that we've been speaking about and we'll speak about extensively next week. It takes place at the halfway mark. 
When we speak about the Antichrist, I realize that a lot of images may come into your mind. There's probably a lot of questions about the Antichrist. There may be some scary images in your mind. People often think of the mark of the beast or 666 or just some form of unbridled evil. Today we're just going to look at a few peculiarities, a few particulars about what the Bible has to say about the Antichrist. Uh, But I want you to know that I've spoken about him extensively in two previous messages. Last summer, we did a series on Bible prophecy, and you can find those on the internet as well. One is called the Antichrist, and one, I believe, is called the Antichrist, Islam, and the New Age Deception. Those two messages that you can get on the internet, I give a lot more detail about the Antichrist, about the coming one world government, about the uh, European Union, and those things that we often think about when we think about the Antichrist. But here's what's very clear in Scripture about him. Number one is that he is a man. It's very clear in Scripture that he's a man. It's not a spiritual entity. It is not a concept. It is not something to be um, spiritualized or it's not an allegory. He is an actual man. And we're told very clearly in the Bible that he is directly empowered by Satan. That is, it says explicitly in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 2, that he has Satan's power and Satan's throne and Satan's authority. When this man comes on the world scene, he will be invested with power from below, so to speak. Satan will give him his throne, his authority, and his power. His throne and authority would suggest that this man will have some sort of authority in the demonic realm. His power means that he will have influence in the world. Remember Satan is called in the book of Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air. Remember that he is called in the New Testament, the God, lowercase g, of this world. He has power in this world because he holds sway over the hearts and minds of men and women. And that power will be entrusted to the Antichrist. We're also told that his coming is in accord with the power of Satan in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. So he's a man who is empowered by Satan. And we are also told in the scriptures that he will be a brilliant politician. He will be a great orator. He will be a tremendous peace broker. He will be a financier and he will be a military conqueror. He's not some madman running around possessed with horns. That's not the Antichrist. He will be very distinguished. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 even alludes to the fact that he may be good-looking, but we know that he will be a brilliant politician. And he will be a peace broker. We're told in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that he authors and enforces a peace covenant in the Middle East that allows Israel to rebuild their temple. Now, that would be an amazing feat given the current world situation. That Islam... And Judaism could coexist peacefully in Jerusalem, much less on the Temple Mount, will be miraculous, so to speak. And that the Arabs and the Jews would get along. There will be a peace covenant during the tribulation period, we are told, that is enforced by the Antichrist. He's a peace broker. We are told that there will be a one-world financial system in the last days, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 16 through 17. Daniel chapter 11 lets us know that he is a great military conqueror, 
And Daniel chapter 8, verse 25 tells us that he is a tremendous orator. We also know that he will become the leader of the entire world. Not just part of the world, but he will be the world leader. The Bible clearly points to, in the last days, a one world government. I'm not going to get into possible details of that today. In my previous couple of messages, you can look up. I did. But you can just look around at what's going on in the world, and you can see that there are people pushing for a one-world sort of government. You can even look at the European Union and the economic power that it is, the military power it is, and the influence that it can hold over the world. And you see these things coming. He will be the leader of the entire world one way or another, be it through the European Union or some other platform. He will come to world power. Revelation 13, 7 makes that clear. It's also clear that he will both display and experience signs and wonders. He will display and experience signs and wonders. These are signs and wonders that he will be able to perform according to the power of Satan. In fact, we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, that they are lying signs and wonders. And he will not only perform them, but he will experience them. We're told in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, that he receives a mortal wound to his head. Sometime during his rise to power, there must be an assassination attempt or some accident that happens, but we're told explicitly that he receives a mortal, that is death comes, a mortal wound to his head, and that he is healed of that wound. And it is that point, it is at that point that the world looks, and according to Revelation 13.3, is amazed and begins to follow after him. He either experiences an actual resurrection or a pseudo-resurrection or a counterfeit resurrection. It's interesting that as Christians, we often apologetically appeal to the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the validity of who he is. And so Satan will appeal to uh, the resurrection of the Antichrist as to the validity of who he is. Satan is a great counterfeiter. We are also told in Scripture that he will be adored and even worshipped worldwide. Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 through 4, verse 8, and verse 12 make it very clear that he receives worship. There is someone called the false prophet. And the false prophet is kind of like his right-hand man. The Antichrist himself, it would seem from Scripture, we'll talk about this in a minute, is a humanist. He's a secularist when he comes on the scene. But he has a guy who is the false prophet. And the false prophet persuades the world to worship the Antichrist, who in Revelation chapter 13 is called the beast. And there is even an image that is made to the beast. And I would suggest to you that the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God and demands to be worshipped as God, is when that image of the beast is placed into the temple. Abomination in the Old Testament always has to do with idolatry. It is the abomination, the idolatrous act that makes desolate, that destroys. Jesus, when he mentions that in our text of uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 14, is, is, is alluding to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. There we are told that the Antichrist will be the abomination that makes desolate. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that there is this image which may be set up 
in the Holy of Holies. We are told that this image is caused to be able to speak and that the whole world worships it. By the way, if you're here in the tribulation period and you do not worship the image of the beast, your life is threatened. That's your homework. Read Revelation chapter 13. So the Antichrist is adored and worshipped worldwide. We also know that he will persecute and seek to destroy both Israel and anyone that would become a Christian in the tribulation period. This is very clear from uh, Daniel chapter 7, Mark chapter 13, our text before us, and Revelation chapter 12 and 13. He wages war against the saints, we're told in the book of Revelation, and we're told that also in Daniel, and he has a special war that he mounts against the nation of Israel. In fact, the battle of Armageddon, the famed battle of Armageddon, is all about the forces of the Antichrist gathered against Jerusalem. You can read it in the opening verses of Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14. We also see it pictured in Revelation chapter 19. That at the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist has gathered under his command all the world forces. And he comes against Jerusalem to destroy it. That is the battle of Armageddon. His forces are gathered in the valley of Megiddo. Har Megiddo is Hebrew for the Mount of Megiddo. His forces are gathered there. Praise the Lord, we are told in Zechariah chapter 14 and in Revelation chapter 19. It is at that time that Jesus Christ returns and with the word of his mouth destroys the Antichrist and his forces and rescues Jerusalem and establishes his millennial kingdom. But he wages war against Christians. In fact, we're told that anyone who becomes a Christian in that day who refuses to receive the mark of the beast is beheaded. Christians will be martyred for their faith, the Jews will be persecuted, and the nation's military might will be gathered against Jerusalem. It's really not too far from the world situation today. It's interesting that it seems that every nation in the world is gathered against Jerusalem. I challenge you to think why. There's no oil in Jerusalem. There's no precious natural resources in Jerusalem. All the resources are in the Arab nations that surround Israel. And yet it is the hotbed of controversy in the Middle East and indeed in the world. Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount. Why is that? Read Revelation chapter 12 as also your homework. And you'll see that Satan has declared war upon Israel in the hopes of destroying the Messiah. We are also told that he will be a humanist that exalts himself above every so-called God. Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 37, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 says explicitly, he exalts himself above every God and above the God. In fact, we're told that he utters blasphemies against the God of the Bible. Repeatedly, Old Testament and New Testament, we are told that there is a sound heard in heaven of a boasting and a bragging about blasphemous things against the God of the Bible. And that is the big-mouthed Antichrist. Wonderfully, we are told that he will be destroyed by Jesus Christ at the second coming. Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. Now, that's sort of a broad overview of some of the characteristics, some of the traits, some of the realities of the Antichrist. In the Bible, there is much more to be known about him. 
Even with regards to his names, the New Testament ascribes to him 13 different names. The Old Testament ascribes to him 33 different names. But what we do know is that he will lead the world with a one-world government, a one-world financial system, and uh, do a little bit of research on that, if you would, a one-world finance system and the reality of that, and a one-world religious system. The false prophet spoken of in Revelation chapter 19 that I spoke of a few moments ago seems to be the leader of this one-world religion, and he directs all that worship toward the Antichrist away from Jesus Christ. Now, it's not hard to look at our world today and see that on the religious front, it is getting more and more ecumenical every day. That is, people are wanting the walls between religions to be removed. And can't we just all get along? Isn't it the same God anyway? Didn't the Pope, wasn't one of his cries, the new Pope, to build a bridge to Islam? Why would anybody in the name of Jesus Christ build a bridge to Islam? It's not the same God. It is diabolically opposed to the God of the Christians and the God of the Jews. Read the Quran if you want and compare the God of the Quran to the God of the Bible. It is impossible that the two are the same God. And yet we see prominent religious figures today wanting to build bridges and say, can't we just all get along? We all worship the same God. It is a lie that the Antichrist and the false prophet will capitalize upon that the Antichrist might receive worship. We see these things lining up today. There's not a doubt about it. And I want you to listen to those two other messages on the internet where we speak about a lot of those details. But I want you to think about this question. Why does an Antichrist come? Why does it even end up that way? Why is that part of the end time scenario? Does he have to come? Remember when we were talking about world conditions that would exist prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ? Many of them are horrible. We talked about wars and rumors of wars. We talked about famines and earthquakes and all these other things that would be taking place, pestilences, so on and so forth. And I reminded you, Jesus was merely saying these would be world conditions in the last days, not that he would cause these things to be so. But the world being a fallen world, more and more rejecting God every day, spins further and further out of control and away from God. And the Bible is very clear, you shall reap what you sow. And part of what the world has sown throughout history is an ideology that says, I don't want a God, I want to be God. And I don't want to do things God's way. I want to do things my way. And even though the world is at war, we want peace, but we want it on our terms. Those are major ideologies in the world that lend themselves to the coming of the Antichrist. It is not as though God ordains the coming of the Antichrist. He tells us that the Antichrist will come in answer to the wicked heart of man, Satan being all too happy to give man what he is looking for. The Antichrist is the ultimate expression of fallen humanity. Humanity that wants to throw off the yoke of God and exalt itself. You remember that Lucifer 
was an angel created by God. He was an angel that was more beautiful and more wise than most, and he was a musical angel. And we're told about him in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 that he wanted to exalt himself above God. He rebelled against God, and so God cast him out of heaven. We call him Satan. That is the same thing that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. He said, oh, God didn't really mean what he said about not having to eat from the tree. In other words, you don't have to do it God's way. You can do it your way. And in actuality, Eve, your way is better than God's way. God knows that when you eat of the tree, you will become wise and you will become like him. God is a cosmic killjoy who wants to keep you from good things, Eve. So do it your way. And Eve fell to the temptation, she ate of the tree, and so went the fall of man. The fall of Satan was because he wanted to exalt himself to the place of God, and the fall of man is because man wanted to be exalted to the place of God. Humanity wants to be self-determinant, self-governing, and self-saving. It's expressed very interestingly on the uh, UN building in New York City. On the front of the UN building in New York City, there is this inscription. It reads, And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's a nice sentiment. In fact, it's a wonderful sentiment. It's from the Bible. It is a quote of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, the second half. The United Nations on their building put the second half of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. They refused to put the first half. They neglected to put the first half there. The first half is nowhere to be found on the building. The first half reads like this. It says, And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Who is the he? Who is the he? The he is God or specifically in that passage, Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. It is a messianic prophecy about the millennial kingdom when Jesus establishes his kingdom here on earth. He will judge between the peoples and then and only then will there be peace among the nations. But look what the nations have done. The nations gathered together just as they did at the Tower of Babel and said, we don't need God. We can be exalted to the place of God. We will bring peace in and of ourselves. In fact, we will write God out of it the front of the UN building. The message is, yes, we want peace, but we want it apart from Jesus Christ. We want it on our own terms. This has been the sentiment among world leaders for some time. Paul Henry Spake was a prime minister of Belgium in 1938 and in 1939, a long time ago. He was the first president of the United Nations General Assembly, and he was the chairman of the Western European Economic Community influential man earlier in the century. Here's a quote from him. We don't want another committee. We have too many already. We want a man of significant stature to hold the allegiance of the people and lift us out of our economic morass into which we are sinking. 
Send us such a man, and if he be of God or of the devil, we will receive him. Unbelievable. Send us a man who will hold the allegiance of the people, who will do for us what we want in leadership and economically, and we don't care where he's from. If he is from the pit of hell, we will receive him. The world wants peace all right. They want security all right. But at any cost and from any source. That man that Paul Henry Spack was uh, talking about came 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ. He was the one from God. He was the Savior of the world sent from God. But the world rejected Jesus Christ. And so God, having sent his man, we will now see in the future that Satan will send his man, the Antichrist, in opposition to Jesus Christ. And though the world rejected Jesus Christ, we are told in the last days that the world will receive Antichrist in accordance with what Paul Henry Spake said. Jesus said concerning the Antichrist in John chapter 5, verse 43. First concerning himself, I come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus said to those people who rejected him, specifically the Jews, in John chapter 5, I have come in my Father's name. I've come in the name of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you rejected me. And now prophesying, he says, another will come. He will come in his own name. He will not come in the name of God or any God. He will come in his own name, and him you will receive. We are told that when the Antichrist comes, it will be with deception. We are told that for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, God will send upon them a strong deluding influence, that having rejected the truth, they might believe the lie. Listen to me very carefully. People often think today that they have liberty with the truth. That when they hear the truth of God, they can put it on the shelf or they can put it on hold or they can do with it whatsoever they want. That is dangerous. The Bible teaches in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that if you reject the truth, God will see to it that you believe the lie. He will give you over to your own depravity. Read later on Romans chapter 1 where men of depraved mind continually rejecting God were given over to their passions and their immorality and their depravity. There is a concept throughout the Bible that God will only strive with man for so long. And if you blow God off, there will come a day where even his mercy is exhausted and he will allow you to go after that for what you crave. I come in my Father's name, you receive me not. Another shall come in his own name. And you will, the world will, receive him. Specifically here, as I said a moment ago, Jesus was speaking to the Jews. It's interesting, if you talk to Jews today concerning their expectation of the Messiah, they will tell you across the board that they expect the Messiah to be a man. We Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God and God in the flesh. Jesus claimed that. The Jews didn't dig that. We see in John chapter 8, John chapter 10, and elsewhere that when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and when he claimed deity for himself, that the Jews picked up stones to kill him. That's because Moses said back in the book of Deuteronomy that another prophet would come like unto himself. 
And so the Jews look at that and they assume that that means that when Messiah comes, he will be merely a man as Moses was a man. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very clearly in Isaiah chapter 7 that he would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And when Messiah would come, he would be God in the flesh. But you talk to the Jews today, and they're expecting a man who is a political leader who will bring world peace. Rabbi Heinrichman is a member of the revived Sanhedrin. He's very influential in the uh, movement to rebuild the temple. Uh, when we go to Jerusalem, we'll hear a little bit about him. When we're over there, we'll see his picture everywhere. He's very influential among the faithful in Israel. And uh, I told you a few lessons ago that the Sanhedrin, which has not existed for some 17 or 1800 years, has been recently revived in Israel. The Jewish writings say that when Messiah comes, he would revive the Sanhedrin. Uh, messianic expectation among the Jews is at a fervor right now. And Rabbi Heim Rickman says this. I have a quote on the PowerPoint. Jews do not believe that the Messiah is a part of God or divine in any way more than any other person. But we do not concern ourselves with the Messiah's identity for he's just a person. We believe that the Messiah sent by God Almighty is not God, but a human being. But the greatest leader and wisest teacher who ever lived. He will put his extraordinary talents to use to precipitate a worldwide revolution which will bring perfect justice and harmony to humanity. When the Messiah arrives, it should not be necessary for his identity to be subject to debate, for the world should be so drastically changed for the better that it should be absolutely incontestable. And that will be the situation at the beginning of the tribulation period. According to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the Antichrist will come on the scene and he will enforce a covenant of peace in the Middle East. And the world will experience a degree of peace which it has not known previously. And because he will allow the Jews to rebuild the temple, many people speculate and conjecture and think that then the Antichrist might be of Jewish descent. You can't prove that. But people speculate about that. I think it's dangerous to think that. But some people do say because uh, he will allow the Jews to rebuild the, their temple that he will be of Jewish descent. That is one of the things that Jews expect the Messiah to do is rebuild the temple. But if you read current Jewish writings, you'll see that they're getting away from that. That they're now saying in their fervor to rebuild the temple that it is a command for Israel to rebuild the temple regardless of whether or not Messiah comes right now. In other words, it is a command that Israel is to obey and Israel is to obey all of God's commands at all of God's times whether the Messiah is present or not. And so current uh, scholarship within Judaism, the part of Judaism that wants to see the third temple built, is saying we don't need the Messiah to lead us in it. We can build it now and it will usher in the time of a Messiah. Other people think that the Antichrist is Jewish because of Daniel 11.37. In Daniel 11.37, it says concerning the Antichrist that he will not regard the God of his fathers. Generally, that phrase, God of his fathers, in the Old Testament refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So many think, well, that means the Antichrist is Jewish, God of his fathers, meaning the God of the Jews. Others think that the Antichrist will 
be received by the Jews as a Messiah because the Greek preposition anti simply means in place of or in substitution to. So he is the Antichrist, Christ being the Greek word for Messiah, the Anti-Messiah or the one who is in substitution to the world Messiah. But if you read carefully in the New Testament, you see that he never really seeks to substitute Jesus Christ. Rather, he seeks to war against Jesus Christ. Uh, in Daniel, it tells us very explicitly that he will war against the prince of princes, Jesus Christ. And we're told in Revelation chapter 19, very explicitly, right around uh, verse 19, that when the Antichrist has his troops gathered in the valley of Armageddon, that when Jesus Christ appears for the time of the second coming, that the Antichrist then mobilizes his forces to fight against Jesus Christ. Hello? Bad move. You can't fight against Jesus Christ, Antichrist. And we're told that he is defeated with the word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So according to how you translate that Greek preposition, anti, he may be a counterfeit Christ or he may simply be opposed to or against Christ. He may be Jewish or he may not be Jewish. We do know and believe that he has got to somehow be Roman because he comes from a revived Roman Empire. It's very clear in the book of Daniel that in the last days, the ruling world power is the Roman Empire. Daniel outlines for us four world empires that would be in existence before they ever took place, starting with the Babylonian Empire, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And it outlines not only the rise to power of the Babylonians, but their fall. Not only the rise to power of the Medo-Persians, but their fall. Not only the rise to power of Greece, but the division when Alexander the Great died. And the four kingdoms, their subsequent fall, the rise to power of Rome. And yet it says concerning the fall of Rome that it would take place when Jesus established his kingdom once and for all on the earth. In other words, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Roman Empire would be destroyed. Now, if you're a student of history, you know that the Roman Empire was never really destroyed. The Roman Empire crumbled from within. If you're a student of history, you also know that when the European Union first started, it called itself the Club of Rome. It had outside its headquarters 10 flagpoles. It meant to have 10 members. There's now about 25 members in the European Union, European Union and, many, and many others pending, excuse me. But it's interesting that we begin to see the Roman Empire of ancient being revived. In fact, if you take a map, and you could do this uh, online, you'll see it if you look at my old lessons. Uh, you could look at a map of the ancient Roman Empire. And then you can look at a map of the European Union today. And they're almost the same nation to nation, except for the European Union, have extended further. Now the European Union is beginning to split in two, and we have the Western European Union. One way or another, we're told in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, that the Antichrist will come out of a ten-nation confederacy. And it will be the revived Roman Empire, and it will be destroyed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the reason that an Antichrist ever comes on the scene is because man wants to be exalted, and he's the ultimate example of that, and because of man's desire for peace apart from God. Be very aware of that. 
We're told in the book of 1 John that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is that spirit which seeks to deny Jesus Christ, to exalt self, and to receive peace apart from the Lord. Be very careful about that, non-Christian and Christian alike. Satan will always come to you with temptations of exaltation. He will always appeal to your ego. He will always give you a way to get a one-up on the rest of the population. He will always promise you some sort of glory. And he will always promise it apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? He said, all the kingdoms of the world have been handed to me. And I have authority to give them to whom I want to. Jesus, if you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, skip the cross. Don't deny self. Don't do the sacrifice for sin thing. I will give you glory. I will give you power. I will give you honor. And he'll tempt you with the same thing today. You don't have to go to the cross for peace. I can give you peace. I can give you peace in a human relationship. I can give you peace in material things. I can give you peace and wealth. I can give you peace and prestige and position and power. Satan promises to every person peace in those ways, but none of them will ever give you peace. The only one that can give peace is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. But be aware, Christian and non-Christian alike, that the spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world to appeal to your ego and to your wanting the glory apart from the cross. There is never peace and there is never glory except through the cross of Jesus Christ. So that is why he will come. But how will he come? He'll come in his own name. He'll come with false peace as we spoke of. He'll come with deception and with lying signs and wonders. He'll come in his own name. Spoke about this with Daniel 11, 36 and 37. Daniel 11, 36 and 37. Then the king will do as he pleases, speaking of the Antichrist, and will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Comes in his own name. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Says he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being of God. And that is exactly what Jesus was talking about there in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. The abomination of desolation, him setting himself up in the temple of God, declaring to be God. As I spoke of previously, he comes with false peace. He enforces that covenant. Read Daniel chapter 9. Verses 24 through 27 for homework. He enforces that false covenant of peace. And then halfway into the tribulation period, he breaks the covenant. He stops the sacrifices from going on at the temple. And that is when Jesus said, for those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Don't grab your coat. Don't go back in your house to get anything. Flee to the mountains. The Antichrist has been revealed. And that is when the great part of the tribulation happens. And we'll speak about those events next week. 
1 Thessalonians 5.3 says concerning this, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. The first three and a half years of the tribulation period, people are going to be saying peace and safety, especially Israel. They will now be dwelling in the land with some pseudo-security. They will be, be saying peace and safety. Perhaps they will be saying this guy, this world leader is our Messiah. He's the political deliverer we've been looking for. Just like we expected, he's not a god, he's a man. But then three and a half years into it, he walks in the temple and says, Behold, I am God, worship me as God. And the Jews go, oh no, we made a mistake. And that's when they're told to flee. We'll look at the details of that next week. But at the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're told in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that when Jesus Christ comes, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. He will come with deception, Daniel chapter 8, verse 25. Oh, he's going to be sneaky, sneaky. It says, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. With deception, that is. Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, Jesus warned us that in the last days, the world would be characterized by deception. He said, see to it that no one misleads you. He says in Mark 13, verses 21 through 22, and then if anyone says to you, behold, he is there, or the Christ is here, do not believe him. For false Christs, and false prophets will rise and will show signs and wonders if or, in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. And he will come with lying signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. He is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and with signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And here's a reference that I gave you earlier, verse 11. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe the lie. He comes in his own name. Jesus Christ came in the name of the Father. He comes with false peace. Jesus Christ came to promise real peace. He comes with deception. Jesus Christ came with truth. He comes with lying signs and wonders. Jesus came in true power. In an ever increasing degree the line will be drawn in the sand in our nation and in the world more salient than ever the question will become whose side are you on there's only two sides there's jesus christ and there's antichrist there's not a third option anything that is not totally submitted to the truth of jesus christ is playing into the lie of the antichrist christians it's very important that we are aware it's very important that we are prayerful in this day that the eyes and the minds of the unbelieving might be opened to the glory of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might see their Savior before they are deluded and deceived by the liar. 
It's very important in these last days that we are bold to speak the name of Jesus Christ. It's very important that we are quick to share the gospel. It's very important that we are quick to love, that we are quick to forgive, that we are quick to give to those who are in need, that we're quick to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's very important that we live as Christians in these last days because the spirit of Antichrist is at work in our world and in an ever-increasing way. Now, in a few weeks, we'll speak about the rapture of the church, and we'll see there that what I believe to be the strongest theory concerning the timing of the rapture is that we will be gone before the Antichrist is ever revealed. But the spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world today to deceive. One of its biggest forms of deception is a New Age movement. I want you to go online this week and listen to that message I gave the Antichrist, Islam, and the New Age conspiracy or something like that. People know the truth. Read your Bibles. Commit Scripture to memory. Study the Word of God. Earnestly contend for the faith. These are the last days and we are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen? Amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, you need to ask Him to save you. The only thing that's stopping is your unwillingness to repent. If Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, listen to me, brother. Everything you've heard today is from the Word of God. It's truth. And you need to come before God today and say, God, I'm a sinner. I repent. Forgive me and save me. At that moment, Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross and rose from the dead, will forgive your sins. He will save you. He will give you a new lease on life. He will give you a second chance. He will wipe the slate clean. When you go out of these doors after having received that forgiveness and sin again, He will forgive you again. He will begin to transform your life from the inside out. You will experience peace that you have never experienced before. Your life will not be free from trouble. In fact, you might have more trouble than you had as a non-Christian. But you will have a friend who is all-powerful that will never leave you or forsake you in the midst of trouble, but will walk you through this life. And at the end of this life, he will deliver you into the arms of the Father in heaven. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he proved it by his resurrection from the dead. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that we don't have to really look for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that even right now you're saving people as they ask. Just in the quietness of their hearts as they're saying, yeah, Lord, that's true. I want to be on your side, God. Forgive me of my sins. Save me. Thank you, Lord, that you're saving them right now. Lord, we ask that you'd fill them with a sense of your grace, that you'd wash them white as snow, that all the perversion, all that old stuff, all that yickiness would fade away now in the light of your glory. You'd restore to them the years that the locust has eaten. You'd remove from them mourning, and you would place upon them gladness. You'd remove from them fear and you'd build into their life security as they trust in you, God. That you would make all things brand new in their lives, Lord. And then make us bold. Make us bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We refuse to apologize for what the Bible says. It is right and it is true in every word. It is gnarly and it is radical, but we believe it. And God, I just ask that you would make our congregation bold with the truth. 
beautifully bold with the truth, that we want to get caught up in the details of countries and 10 countries and European unions and coins and all this different stuff, but we would get caught up in the reality of Jesus Christ. And we would speak your name, that your kingdom would come here, that your will would be done on this coastline as it is in heaven. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.